Welcome back to the Stab Podcast channel. I'm your co-host, Stace Galbraith, and this week we have a very special episode. Red Bull No Contest with Ashton Goggins is back for another fantastic season. And in this series, Ashton is going to take us all around the world, San Francisco, Morocco, South Africa, and Tahiti. First off, we trot up to San Francisco's thick skin and big-hearted surf community. Along for the ride is Jamie O'Brien in Walsh, Izzy Gomez, and none other than the once famously dubbed most hated man in surfing, Lewis Samuels. Episode one, San Francisco is live on the site. If you enjoyed that episode, this podcast is going to be right up your alley. We're going to take a deeper dive into some of the stories from Ashton's time in San Francisco. And if you haven't checked out the episode, it's free. Go and get around it. But in the meantime, let's hear from Ashton. Ashton Goggins, welcome back to the studio. San Francisco, probably one of the more overlooked surf scenes getting around. Yeah, so San Francisco is a second home to me. When I left Florida, I moved to New York City for a few years and started working at Mollusk, the surf shop which started in San Francisco when they opened in Brooklyn. And so I had this curiosity about San Francisco and moved there in 2011 and it really is responsible, like my move to San Francisco, I feel like is what is responsible for me having every single opportunity that I've had since when it comes to the surf world. And what I find interesting about it is that it is still, to this day, probably the most underground surf scene in America. And for me, that's what makes it so special. And so it was a very, it was a very delicate episode to make for me because I don't want to blow up a place that is so near and dear to my heart because it's stayed underground for a reason. And it's not that because it's localized or because there's people that are mean there. It's there. It's underground because it's a difficult place to be a surfer. It's raw. It's unpredictable. It's urban in every sense of the word. It's grimy and it's gritty and it's got all of the struggles that living in a city have but it's also in one of the most beautiful natural environments in all of america dead set in the middle of redwoods and a raw coastline that stresses all the way south to santa cruz so for me it was it was very exciting to go do an episode on a place that i was very familiar with and it was super near and dear to my heart but i didn't expect how much responsibility would come with that task of trying to get it right and trying to capture what makes San Francisco, San Francisco. Talk to us about the delicate balance between traveling to a place like Morocco where there is a hospitality that would, you know, encourage you to, within reason, talk about certain waves and how they operate and how to even get there and and all those things that other spots like San Francisco, which has a much bigger population and a much bigger surfing population, but the balance between, you know, wanting to tell the stories, but also wanting to respect the scene that's already there. Yeah, with the San Francisco episode, and and part of what I think makes, for me, the like San Francisco surfing experience different from a lot of places is, it's not a place that is going to blow smoke up your ass. Like, they don't care who you are, what you do. When you're surfing in San Francisco, like, you've got a 4-3 and a hood and booties, and your hood's up. You don't know who you're surfing next to. And it's very similar to New York in that aspect, that you might be out next to a Michelin-starred chef or a tech executive or, you know, just some working-class Irish dude that lives in the sunset. And it's 
a re- like when people talk about a diverse lineup, to me, San Francisco is like the ultimate diverse lineup. And it's a place that is, it absorbs everything. It's a, it, it's a, it's a city that has its own identity and a surf scene that has its own identity, but it is a place that has welcomed outsiders with a particular type of relationship and dynamic for a long time. And San Francisco is definitely a place that people have ended up for decades. It has a super strong local scene of guys that grew up there and that are multi-generational Ocean Beach and Fort Point surfers that have had to watch decades and decades of people cycle through for five and ten year periods. And that's, for me, the thing that I'm mindful of in a place like San Francisco is that I love it because of the people that are going to be there in 15 years when I go back there. It's about the people who have been there for decades who are willing to tolerate people coming and wanting to make whatever it is that they want to make happen, happen. But expect that to come with a certain expectation that they're not going to completely change the community that made it what it is today and made it a place that these people wanted to live. And San Francisco, I feel like, has done a really good job of of striking that balance of like being very accepting of people moving there, but still keeping like a really core, like local, like died in the wool San Francisco scene of guys that are born and raised there that still, you know, are part of the like daily texture of that surf scene. Um, and there is no better example of that than Maddie Lopez, who Maddie's a Mavericks charger, like a standout at Ocean Beach for probably the past 20 years. Him and Andy Olive and Marty Magnuson have been like the three kingpins of Ocean Beach for probably the past 20 years. Them along with Christian and like the San Francisco crew, to me, have always been like the lost generation of San Francisco, like making surf movies and like sort of keeping a little bit of the like Southern California surf culture as far as like filming and you know making surf films and starting a surf brand that's sort of the closest thing that has ever come out of San Francisco as far as like an authentic like lifestyle and surf brand and today Maddie uh, owns two sort of institutions in the sunset he owns a bar called White Cap which is like a cocktail bar and little nightclub on Terrible Street it's the best place ever to go and have like a perfect cocktail after a surf and ocean beach all day and then he him and Andy Olive purchased a bar called Pitts. It used to be called uh, Pittsburgh's, and it was like the seediest little like dive bar, football bar in the sunset. And he turned it into like the raddest little local sort of surf, sports, like local sunset dive bar in the neighborhood. Pool table, pinball machines. And for this trip, we got to go and bring Ian Walsh, Izzy Gomez, and Jamie O'Brien. Ian and Izzy had both met Maddie over the years at Mavericks. And for them, it was cool to, like, connect the dots and get to spend time in the the neighborhood with Maddie and to see, like, how he has sort of invested in the community, Um, you know, operating these bars that have become, like, sort of the meeting point for a lot of the scene in the neighborhood. The surf culture in San Francisco wasn't based around like the surf industry or contests. They were working class. They were working class. They weren't getting paid. They weren't sponsored. That's the huge difference between San Francisco and these bigger beach towns. It's like the the surf DNA is totally different. 
the surf industry and competitive surfing and sponsors are totally immersed in Southern California and Santa Cruz. And that's not even a part of this. Yeah. You know, it's like not the deal. My dad is a native San Franciscan that started surfing here in the 70s. When he was 15, he went into Wise to buy a board and a wetsuit. He's like, I want to be a surfer. And Bob tried to talk him out of it. Bob was like, you don't want to be, are you sure you want to be a surfer? And like Bob had like just opened his business, yeah. you know, was probably like not making a lot of money. And Bob's sitting there trying to talk him out of becoming a surfer. They were old and they were bitter and you know, all that good shit. But that's our culture, you know? It's foggy, it's cold. Yeah, but, it's um, not inviting. No, but it's just kind of like San Francisco in general, you know? It's not for the faint of heart. That's why most people do their five to 10 years and then they, they bounce. And then walk us through some of these photos. This is Kelly's. This is Kelly's Cove right here. Kelly's is just like the easiest access. It's semi-protected. Yeah. So that became the spot, you know? But this is how they used to do it back in the day. Everyone hung out on the wall. What a sick scene, though. Just like everyone kicking it. Yeah, like, look, there's tons of surfers at Kelly's. I mean, you see all these boards. That's the epicenter of San Francisco surf culture. Pretty diverse crew that you had with you on this trip. How did you set this up? What was the storyline? So San Francisco was was tricky because we wanted to do a couple different things. We wanted to sort of capture the spirit of the surf scene and meet some of the like original characters. We wanted to dive into how big of an influence the internet has had on surfing and how important that has been to the San Francisco community and also how it's affected the San Francisco surf scene. And we wanted to bring Jamie O'Brien with us as he's sort of seen as like surfing's 21st century digital boy and the surfer who more than anyone has learned or figured out how to harness the power of the internet and of YouTube to create his own brand and create his own platform and really like put his own voice out into the surfing ecosphere with zero filter. Spending time in San Francisco, I've gotten to know Lewis Samuels over the years, and I know that Lewis and Jamie had a really unique relationship in the early days of the internet and surfing, and I wanted to sit them both down and hear both of their sides of the story on how they got to know each other in the early days, because it turns out that Lewis and his work on both power rankings for Surfline and in starting his own blog doing post-surf, those moves were hugely influential on Jamie as he was early in his like sort of thinking about creating his own brand, creating his own voice, and creating his own platform. And actually at a certain point, he found out that Lewis was flying to Kauai to interview Bruce Irons for a surfer magazine profile and had his manager kidnap him at the Honolulu airport and bring him to the North Shore, get him wasted, and try and get him to sign a contract to write and uh, direct his first profile film, that Who is J.O.B., which Chad Smith ended up directing. And Lewis ended up accepting a check for like $10,000 
and then flying home to California hungover the next day and having an anxiety attack about it, feeling like he didn't want to do it and couldn't do it, and tore up the check and sent it back to him and apologized. But Jamie and Lewis both epitomize sort of the like DIY aspect of what you can do with the internet. And being that we were going to San Francisco with YouTube and Google and all of the tech companies that were there, it felt fitting to bring Jamie and to have Lewis and him sit down and talk about those sort of early days and sort of what sort of connections there are between Lewis's relatability as a voice in surfing as an outsider and Jamie's approach to making sort of relatable content for a broader audience than the sort of standard core surf audience. Um, it was super interesting to see him talk. It was like yin and yang uh, hanging out together on a couch in San Francisco. And I think that they both really had a good time like together, honestly. Uh, at the end of the trip, I know Jamie uh, seemed like he had been surprised by the entire experience. Um, I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into going on the trip. And that's always like a, for me, it's like a, I feel a obligation to give these surfers that are coming on these trips like a particular experience, not just scoring waves, but meeting people that they would have otherwise not encountered and getting a sense for a city or a place or, you know, like a region that they wouldn't have otherwise had if they'd just gone there trying to chase waves. And I know that it was pretty cool for everyone to hang out with Lewis because at one point Lewis was, was considered the most hated man in surfing. And if you spend time with him, you realize that he's just the most like passionate, thoughtful, like intelligent guy who really like believes that there's something special about surfing and is particularly passionate about like the Bay Area and the surf culture up there. And I think it was, uh, it was cool to be able to spend time with him. And he, him and Maddie connected us with Pee Wee, who for people that have read Bill Finnegan's Barbarian Days is like the, the antagonist in the San Francisco section of that book. He's this original sort of underground, hardcore, big wave local. And we got to hang out with him just after his 70th birthday at Fort Point and to hear about surfing before there was wetsuits up there and when Fort Point was still a military base and you'd get tickets for surfing underneath the bridge. Um, and to be able to connect with guys who were like there at the very beginning of a surf scene in a place that's as influential and as iconic as San Francisco and to also have guys like Maddie and Lewis along as the sort of cultural guides, it was like the coolest trip ever. Uh, and I think that Lewis and Jamie and Ian and Izzy and everyone, like it was a cool mix of people to have as we sort of moved through the city and got to go see everyone that I wanted everyone to meet. Because what makes San Francisco so radical is it's just like so many incredible people doing interesting things at the highest level, whether you're working in tech or coffee or you know food and beverage or running a restaurant San Francisco is a place that is like known for some of the best in the world in so many different categories and so many of those different categories have people operating that are surfers that live in that city um, and similar to New York it's like it is an aspirational place for someone who wants to do whatever it is that they do in any creative field at the highest level and to still have a really productive surfing life. We didn't get to feature 
as much of the conversation between Lewis and Jamie in the episode as we'd liked because it was honestly like you could have done a, your own episode just on their their conversation together. So here is some of the the best meat off the bones of Lewis Samuels and Jamie O'Brien. In the early 2000s, no one raised as much hell nor garnered a more polarizing reputation amongst professional surfers on the world tour than Bay Area writer and surfer Lewis Samuels, who revived Derek Hines' legendary surfer magazine power rankings, caustic, hilariously witty, occasionally cruel critical observations of the world championship tour. Lewis's power rankings quickly became the most anticipated and feared features at each and every world tour event, garnering him the moniker as the most hated man in surfing when Lewis did the power rankings, like he pitched the idea to us, like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to analyze the top 44 from the, not from like a pros thing, but I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to watch every heat. I'm going to dork out on it. I'm going to write. Some of those things were 10,000 fucking words. And he'd send them over and I'd be like, I can't do this. I can't print this dude. I feel like in some ways I've said most of what I wanted to say. And for me, it always came from a place of a, uh, I definitely wasn't writing stuff for money. It was about feeling passionate about the sport and the way I was engaging in it. I guess it just speaks to there was something going on there where it felt disruptive to the whole culture of surfing at that point. Yeah. What I was doing and what I was saying. And um, the idea just being that I was somebody who was sitting there trying to think through what, where the whole culture of surfing was going and try to maybe make some suggestions about things that should change. So as an outsider to the whole surf industry thing that was happening, the internet was just a way for me to like try to kind of kick my foot into the door a little bit and open it enough to, to have some kind of, I don't even know what I was looking for. I guess I was trying to share what my experience of surfing was in the ways that it was different from what the surf industry was saying, this is surfing. I think I saw that there was this excitement around the sport, the competition aspect of surfing at that point, but that the infrastructure around it hadn't caught up. The removal of that that filter, that the outsider perspective was all helpful because I think it was a point in surfing where everything was pretty locked down by the industry and they were determining kind of like what were people were gonna ride and what was gonna sell and what was gonna be in the magazine and that determined what people were gonna ride. And it was a narrow vision of surfing to me. People wanted something that felt a little bit more authentic. And I think that's like a common thread through the, the way you approach stuff and got traction and the early writing that I did getting traction was that People wanted just to remove all that shit that had been built up in between team managers and marketing managers and a manicured vision of like, this is how we sell shorts. It, it was just supposed to be back to that authentic experience of going surfing, or in my case, that authentic experience of talking shit about your friends after going surfing. I mean, that is like for a lot of people around the world, I think for better or worse, a lot of what surf culture was, was like hanging out with your friends, talking shit. Yeah. For Surfline, I was, I was really stoked when he was doing that. That was a time where surfers were, and that was like, because it was funny, it wasn't just some like, like Lewis could have been a commenter in some forum somewhere and nobody would have cared. But it was like this thing and it was fairly, people, a lot of people looked at that stuff. For me, it really was something different than the comment section. Like number one, it was non-anonymous. Like I was never gonna fucking say anonymous shit about people. Like everything I said there, I felt like I needed to be able to like look them in the fucking eye and stand behind what I said. Yeah. If you're not willing to do that to me, it's just like a fucking cowardly thing, yeah. just to be like an anonymous troll on the internet. Like I, I was not into that. Oh, I think it's so different when people actually have a conversation with you and they, they could see to a certain extent that like this is you talking shit or you're just passionate about surfing that um, I would always get to that point where I'd be like, why do people care what I think? 
I think I think like having that direct connection in the comments, especially in YouTube, is like it to me. It's like a it's like a it's like a it's a double-edged sword because oh, I'll yeah. like I'll start reading some super positive stuff. And I'm super psyched. I'm like oh, and I'm like trying to like you know respond to my people that are like loving on me, and I'm like ooh, I get to one of them, it's, it ruins my day. I'm like oh you. Mm. So I'm still, like, it still does that for you, even though you've been doing this for how many fucking it. years and how many of that shit. You must have read every bad thing about you already. Yeah, but but like. I just, I, I work so hard to put out this content and they're like, this song sucks, you're receding hairline, you're overweight, you're, I'm like, I'm like, dude, I've been doing yeah. this shit longer than anybody, I work harder than anybody and like, you're hating on me? Like, I'm not nitpicking your life. Lewis's use of the internet to build his own brand and grow his personal profile as a writer and cultural player within the surf world was inspiring to a young Jamie O'Brien, a surfer who has relentlessly harnessed the power of the internet and unapologetically propelled himself to a position as one of the most universally recognizable surfers in history. I remember I went to Rip Curl and I was like, I wanna make a Jamie O'Brien movie. And they're like, mm, we're not ready for a Jamie O'Brien movie. I, I felt like I would go on these trips and I wouldn't get, this, get what I wanted out of it. They wouldn't use the certain clips that I thought were sick. And like, I had no control over this. So I spent time like collecting footage and filming and doing the whole thing. And I was like, finally, like, I had control of, of my own surfing career. Longevity is in free surfing, filming, content creation, and you own your own content. I think the Jamie that the public see now was already completely present. Like it was completely switched on already. Pre-YouTube, pre-social media, pre-email. He's already like grinding out with his own filmer and self-producing his own movies. Even down to, a, it's like doing a feature film and a vlog and everything in between. He was doing that way before that even had a chance to live on the internet. When that was going on to DVD, he's creating his own projects and creating his own value to his sponsors outside of just doing events. There's a lot there and that just parlayed right into where he is right now, which is exactly where he should be at the forefront of surfing's, I guess, instrumental place in YouTube and living on the internet. I think another thing Jamie's been able to do is connect with a lot of different surfers, which is important. And that, what I mean by that is the ability and the level he does things in the water in waves of consequence is very studied by the elite of the sport and respected. And then the other side of that is he has like a, I guess an approachable personality outside of the water that makes like somebody that will never come close to being able to ride a wave like that at Pipeline be able to have a conversation with him. A pretty important thing, like you're covering a lot of layers and surfing. That stuff these guys are doing in these 10 foot barreling waves is phenomenal and I'm like enamored by just like staring at it but like seeing them do what I like to do with my friends after school as well is like a different level of connection. So you're getting both sides of it. And I think Jamie does a good balance of hitting on both those points. I think that my whole goal is like try and make relatable content and being a positive role model for the next generation, you know, like no swearing and like, you know, like no alcohol on our show, like just a clean cut fun show but our antics kind of speak for them for itself. I feel like it's like the, 
the perfect platform. You guys are doing that shit sober? Yeah. <laughs> and there was definitely a little window in time where I think, I think people figured out that they could just tell their own story and have a much higher profile than like their contest results might have allowed or also that there was a, a power to being unique. So as we mentioned earlier, you know, a great bunch of characters and different characters, you know, so many different points of view in this, you know, conversation and across the whole episode. But what is it that people can look forward to most about this one? Yeah, we definitely were able to capture, a. I mean, it's funny with a with an episode like San Francisco, it's very difficult for me to figure out what to include because there's so much that I want to fit into an episode like that because I just know how much there is to the San Francisco surf scene. We filmed a scene at Proof Lab, which for anyone that's traveled to Northern California is like a surf, outdoor, skate, adventure, like institution. Uh, and we weren't able to fit it into the episode because we just didn't have time. Um, but the episodes got as much as I could fit of San Francisco into one episode. We got to go and hang out with John McCambridge at Mollusk, which I think is probably one of the most influential surf shops of the past 20 years. They basically invented the very idea of like a boutique throwback heritage surf shop and have fostered this incredible community of artists and painters and surfboard builders and designers and musicians over the years that is also what has made for me the San Francisco surf scene so unique is just the like richness of cultural like sort of cross-pollination that happens in a city like that um, and Mollusk is the best example to me of what you can use the quote-unquote surf shop model to accomplish whether it's gallery shows with Thomas Campbell or Alex Copps or Jeff Canham or Jeff McFetridge um, or, you know, Jackson Brown or the, you know, the OCs playing in their shop or Cat Power. Like, if you can harness that energy and put it into the four walls that most people think of as a surf shop, it's, uh, it's a pretty radical experiment. And I think that no one's done it better than those guys. And it was cool to, like, have... Jamie O'Brien have the like fish out of water experience of walking into that shop and genuinely asking like what is this place like unable to recognize it as a surf shop like didn't get it at all and his partner Tina is there just like so pumped on everything that they make like grabbed a, one of their wetsuits they make beautiful like bespoke wetsuits that are super affordable minimal branding super nice neoprene uh, and yeah she was pumped she got to grab a hooded 4.3 and go to go surf Fort Point and as a Hawaiian, like you're freezing cold in a place like San Francisco. Um, and so, yeah, places like Proof Lab and Mollusk, they have like a unique responsibility to that surf community and they do it better than most surf shops anywhere on the planet. I think that those two exemplify uh, how a surf shop can be a catalyst for community. The other part that was fun was, you know, it's San Francisco, we went in April we didn't get that good a surf. We got a day at Fort Point. We got a couple hours at Ocean Beach on like the right tide swings yeah. where the wind wasn't super intense. And we got some like punchy beach break, but we definitely didn't get that like all time corduroy mm -hmm. to the horizon, yeah. long period groomed, just teepees 
that Ocean Beach serves up, you know, from October to January. Mm. Purely our fault. We knew we were we knew we weren't going to score, and to be honest, we lucked out with what we were able to get. But I think the episode does have a good representation of how good the waves get because we were able to use some of the archive of Chris Wilson from Powerline Productions, the late great Chris Wilson, who probably for the past fifteen years has documented every big day at Ocean Beach and Mavericks, um, which might not seem like that big a deal, but that region is historically underdocumented. It's a place that, you know, for a long time you weren't supposed to film. And without blowing up the spot and without, you know, posting clips of waves in the middle of swell events, Chris gathered an incredible archive of the best days of Ocean Beach over the past years. And um, his partner, Kurt, was generous enough to let us use some of the archive of all the local crew um, sort of on the, the day of days. And I think that it's like one of the better highlight reels of Ocean Beach that's been assembled. So I was pretty pumped on that. And then the other part with doing these trips, a lot of the times I'm like playing host and San Francisco is a place that I'm probably the most comfortable showing people a good time. It's one of those scenes where once you've lived there for a little bit, every cool restaurant, bar, sort of place that operates in San Francisco, there's some degree of surfer labor. And so we got to take the whole crew to a handful of, in my opinion, the best restaurants in California, but definitely some of the best restaurants in San Francisco. Um, Outerlands, which is a sort of institution in the sunset on Judas Street that's sort of defined a certain type of like California cuisine. The owner uh, and founder, Dave Muller, former owner, um, is an artist and like full sort of mayor character in the neighborhood. And Outerlands is, in my mind, the pinnacle of the like community of the Sunset's like proudest achievement. Uh, it's the center of the Sunset as far as the social scene and good food. And you basically start any good night in the Sunset at Outerlands and then head to Woods, Pits, and Whitecap, which we did with the whole crew. It was the last night that we were there. And I feel like San Francisco, especially for surfers, it gives you the unique mix of being able to score waves, whether you're flying in for a Maverick swell or an Ocean Beach swell, or just flying in to get what you get and balance that out with traveling around a city that is, for a lot of people, like an international destination, and rightfully so. It has everything that a world-class city has to offer from music, art, you know, design, uh, career paths, business. Uh, it's a embarrassment of riches. And I felt like we were able to capture as much of where all of that mixes with surf culture in San Francisco. Tech and surfing. Break it down for me. Yes, yeah, so the the stereotypes about tech and surfing in the Bay Area are very, very pervasive. I took them to Pacifica, this little sort of sheltered beach in between Half Moon Bay and San Francisco, which they call Google Point because it's the closest beach to Silicon Valley and it's where most surfers in the area learn how to surf because it's a, it's a significantly more pedestrian friendly area than anywhere else in the sort of 20 mile radius as far as Ocean Beach down to Half Moon Bay. 
and it's hard to parse what the the sort of stereotypes are for what the reality is but my experience of the way that tech and surfing interact in San Francisco is almost entirely in a positive way you find you find really really interesting high level executives in the water at Ocean Beach we got to spend time with Mark Valenta who's a creative director at Adobe who's worked on the Photoshop team for the last few years and has been in Adobe for like 17 years. And you talk about a company that has been influential on the entire world as far as the creative arts go. Um, we got to go visit the Adobe offices in Soma and to see what like a modern sort of tech office looks like. I think a lot of people have these ideas about them being like uh, almost like college campuses with sleeping pods and private chefs and the reality is that they're just these beautiful architectural marvels full of people doing really interesting shit and making not just interesting cultural contributions but also building tools that allow people to make their own cultural contributions and it was one of the more uh, it, it was one of the more satisfying experiences getting to bring the film crew to go see what that world looks like because I don't think a lot of people get to go walk in the doors of a place like Facebook or Instagram or Google or Adobe and living in San Francisco I've had the opportunity of doing that at most of those campuses and yeah it feels like you're going to like the NASA campus in the 60s or something like that it's like walking into the future and it's uh, it's what makes that city so important to the world is so much of what we take for granted in 2023 was dreamed up in you know a 20 mile radius of san francisco apple google you know every tech uh business uh every app based mobile system it all comes from that world and Nowadays, surfing is like a totally reasonable pursuit for most people that work in those fields, and you feel that in the lineup. And it's not the worst thing to be sitting next to the people that are shaping the future when you're, you know, paddling out on a standard workday morning. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, we'll feature a behind-the-scenes look from episode two, which is Morocco. That's currently live on the site now. So if you haven't already, go and check it out. Speak with you next week.